0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show, we're going to play some audio from a recent Dana White interview where he rehashes some of his criticisms of the MMA media. We're also going to talk to Cody Stamen. After his big win at UFC 250, but also the tragic loss that he was dealing with at the same time. And we'll dig into the mailbag here on today's show. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156. Don't forget about that mailbag. Luke Thomas show at gmail.com. All right. Happy, happy. Uh, let's see. Wednesday to you. Hump day. Halfway through the week or about to be anyway. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I know I am, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, Fun one today. I always like the mailbag days. I like getting to the mailbag. I like to see the weird questions you guys come up with. Sometimes the weird challenges, mm, yes, there's often that part in the discussion as well. But that's okay. If you can't defend your ideas, then you shouldn't have them in the first place, right? So there is that. We will do the mailbag uh, here a little bit later. Let's get to this if we can here, Cabarino. So Dana White was on. I guess the podcast is the Schmo's podcast. It's the Schmo zone. Is that the name of the podcast? I think that's right. I want to make sure I get it right. Correct, sir. Yep. Um, he did not do it as the Schmo, right? He does the podcast as his real name, which is Dave. I think that's right.
2: Is that right? Yeah, he's totally, he's totally normal uh, doing it like his normal personality. They actually yeah, talked yeah. about that a little bit too at the beginning. Oh, they did. Okay. Uh, okay. So
1: we've got a bunch of this to get to. And, um, he, by the way, he sort of confirms he gave up on Zupa boxing. We'll get to that in just a moment. All right. So Dana, one of his favorite targets, as you guys well know, is uh, it's me. It's Ben Folks, It's whoever in the media. It's the media generally. He likes to play that old tune. So let's kick the jukebox and, and and put it back into high gear here. Cut one. Journalists never get the story right, says Dana.
3: I have this love, hate, mostly hate, hate relationship with the media. And uh, the the media these days, they're not, they're, a lot of these guys aren't real media guys as far as I'm concerned. You know, media, for instance, the other day when I was bitching about the, the Conor McGregor headlines about how I ripped Conor McGregor and all this crazy shit. They don't even interview you. They watch an interview that you do, then they write stories off of that interview without fact checking or, or or really knowing um, w- w- what the situation is, and they just write stories. So it's almost like, it reminds me of when you were in school and they used to sit the whole class in a circle and you'd whisper in each other's ear, And by the time it got to the other side of the room, it wasn't even the same telephone. Exactly. It it was, you know, that's what the media is like these days.
1: I mean, I don't even know where to start with this. We've had Dana booked on this show before and then he uh, by other outside parties. And then he canceled at the last minute when they realized, oh, you have to go on a guy's show you don't like. I mean, if it was one thing where we could hit the dude up for clarification, believe me, I would. But we don't get that opportunity. So this idea that you can just call him up and be like, hey, Dana, is that what you really meant? Number one, you can't. Number two, we played the audio from when he said that on first take. It sounded pretty straightforward. Number three, yes, this is what happens when you are the head of an important sports organization. Things you say matter. So it behooves you to get it right and be clear the first time. Now, I did not hear him on Jim Rome. He might have been totally clear there, but we played that first take audio for you, where he talked about Connor. Now, he's he's got a point that like, oh, he ripped Connor. Eh, he's right. He didn't really rip Connor. I, I, he, it, it wasn't clear about the timeline of events because he explained the situation very poorly. But he is right. It did not seem. I don't think he was designing it to be nice, but he was not. It was not obviously clear he was being demeaning either. So they definitely took some license with that. But yeah, if you say things to the public, they're going to react to it. That's true for everybody who's at the top of a sports organization, whether it's a manager, whether it's a coach, whether it's a uh, player, whether it's a team owner, whether it's a sports commissioner, doesn't matter. They're all under the same kind of consideration. I don't know why Dana is under the belief that he should be exempt from these considerations, but this is how the world works. It's not how the media works. It's how the world works. If it were true that you could get great access to him for clarification, this would be a great point. But he does not offer that. Certainly not to a bunch of us. So, you know, I'm not sure what to tell you. Uh, and here's his glee. A bunch of media is going to get laid off because, you know, nothing says empathy like watching people lose their jobs. Cut to
3: there were actually some guys in the media that were when this whole pandemic started that fought against us hard fought against us to not be able to put on events. You fucking idiots cover this sport. What do you think's going to happen if, if the sport isn't, isn't, uh, you know, if there's no fights happening, if there's no, you know, what what are you going to cover? And, you know, I, I never want to see anybody lose their job, mm-hmm. but it's really hard for me to feel <clears throat> sorry for people because it's coming. And you're going to see a lot of people in the media getting laid off over the next, you know, six months.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt he feels very badly about it. I don't know why this argument is hard to understand. <clears throat> I don't I don't understand it. Number one. A bunch of people have already been laid off. Some who may have fought uh, or argued rather that the UFC should not put on shows without state sanctioned commission oversight, which is exactly, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) what we argued. The idea was not, you should never do shows. The idea is you should wait until you can do shows in a reasonably and somewhat reliably safe manner. And we didn't know what that looked like at the time. We have a much better sense about it now. I made this point pretty explicitly. Once Nevada had put together that that uh, their own protocol, I felt much better about it. I, you don't hear me complaining about it at all, do you? When was the last time I complained about any kind of safety consideration related to COVID-19 on this show? Maybe the Jacksonville shows because those were first and Florida basically let UFC do whatever they want. Have I complained one time about the Nevada shows? One time have I complained. Not, not no, because <clears throat> that's what we were waiting for. And the whole point is, the shows did come back. They came back in early May, so they were off for um, six weeks or so. <clears throat> Excuse me, I swallowed the wrong way. They were off for six weeks or so. And they came back. Here's the point. Everyone still got laid off, and not just in MMA. They got laid off across sports. Because the way that these businesses work, these aren't just MMA businesses as media entities. They are MMA properties as part of larger media businesses. And as much as people who criticize the media, and this extends far beyond Dana, like to think, they're not smarter than the people who run media organizations. The reality is nobody really knows a good method for keeping media healthy from a business perspective now that the business model has been turned on its head with the advent of the internet and then with the advent of the internet with Google and Facebook essentially controlling the entirety of the ad business. Nobody can figure it out. Not really, not well. Some better than others, right? Some of the major players, your posts, your New York Times is, you know, they've kind of got a thing going on. Sirius XM does pretty well, obviously. So there's some some subscription things that are doing better than others. No one's immune, but in terms of like getting it right as a scalable thing, no one has figured it out because it's really, really difficult. And so when the ad business uh, was affected in totality, all of sports media was affected in totality, not merely MMA. And in fact, what it shows is that even with the shows resuming, it didn't mean anything in the end. It wasn't enough to protect everyone's job. What does that tell you? Like, I mean, it'd be better if people wanted to make criticisms about the media in a way that A, indicate they understood the media business, but by that I mean the model, and then two, could... Assess their criticisms in good faith. If you wanted to say that the concerns about the shows they were doing or attempting to do, again, outside the purview of any state athletic commission, they can say otherwise, but there was no indication that on tribal land they were going to have a real state athletic commission there. Right? Certainly in California, California wasn't sanctioning it. If you want to state that that was a reasonably safe thing to do, then make that argument, right? So you could say that the media didn't understand, for whatever reason that might be, how safe, in fact, it was. You can can probably make that argument. Uh, I'm not sure how good it is or bad it is, but I think it's an avenue available to you. But the idea that they fought against them hard, they fought against running shows at a very imprudent time to the point where government officials got involved and had to sh- had to pump the brakes on this, <clears throat> and this is the media's fault. Like <laughs> all we said was, uh, and as I, I will speak for myself. All I ever said was, "What we need to see is what does safe look like." And before, before also remember some of the considerations then were no longer in play. So, for example, there was a shortage of tests before. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Um, you know, in the variety of other circumstances related to hospital availability, again, depending on where they go, this is not a concern anymore, right? So there was a lot of like, uh, situation specific things that wouldn't apply anymore, but getting rid of those, the, the crux of the argument was people said, okay, when is it safe to come back? When is it safe to put UFC to put shows on again? Because I think what they thought I was calling for was some kind of indefinite suspension, and my answer was at the time, and it has been very consistent all the way through. When a state athletic commission creates its own protocol, when they have time to figure out what they want to do and how it's supposed to be done, which means not only UFC can come back, but any other promoter who can meet the criteria can come back, that's when they're ready. And lo and behold, it's not just UFC putting on shows in Nevada, it's top rank as well. They have three shows in, uh, this week on ESPN, three shows. That's the argument. That's the argument. So if you want to say that argument is bad, well, tell me why that argument is bad. If you want to say that the show that they wanted to run on April 18th was perfectly safe, then make that then make that argument. But don't make the I mean, it's such a bad faith argument to say that they fought against it because they just wanted to see bad things happen. No, you can say we're wrong, but say why we're wrong. Is that really? I I never understand. this. Why is that so much to ask? But make the argument and also make the argument for why you didn't need to do covid testing at UFC Brasilia make the argument for why you were, and the plan was to not do any covid testing at UFC London make the argument for why that was okay because that was the plan and that was the execution there and you never hear that So, are we in a great place now? You have not heard me complain about top rank shows. You have not heard me complain about UFC shows. You have not, and I'm not going to. There's, to my knowledge, I mean, you could maybe make an argument about some of the reliability of the tests and you know whether or not the risks is worth the reward here, and we can have a conversation about that. But in general, you've not heard me complain one time. It's not a coincidence, folks. They met the demand. So all I wanted to see doesn't mean that the UFC working with a commission is risk-free. I think we can all acknowledge that there's no way to get around risk, but that was it. That was the whole point. They did it. Okay, fine. Good. I will, uh, cease with the concerns until something, you know, terrible changes. God forbid, in which case we'll reevaluate it. But as, as it is right now steady as she goes. All right, let's go to break. We come back. We're going to be joined by Cody Stamen. We'll talk to him, see how he's been doing, uh, obviously in a, in a, both a tragic and yet great moment in his, in his life. So we'll talk about both Luke Thomas show. Don't go anywhere.
2: The Yakim Barak Show. When your first step to resolve something is go to social media or to go to a public forum, to vent, I think that just makes you take two steps backwards in even trying to resolve it in the first place, you know? So I just think not just boxing media, boxing promoters, and boxers. To refrain from letting social media be the place where you know, we hold court.
3: Weekdays from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern, only on SiriusXM Fight Nation, Channel 156.
1: Great win this gentleman had. We hadn't had a chance to talk to him because obviously he got a lot going on in his life. But he had a big win at UFC 250 over Brian Kelleher. But looking forward to catching up with him. He joins us now on the hotline. It is the one and certainly the only Cody Stamen. Hi, Cody. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? Doing well. I appreciate you making some time for us. Well, let's start with the uh, the fight, first of all. Uh, let's discuss it here with Brian Kelleher. you got to be pleased with the performance. Uh, other factors aside, just in terms of the execution, you know, he was a tough challenge, uh, but it seemed like you were just a little bit sharper, kind of everywhere. What is your assessment of what went right for you in that fight?
4: No, it was a tough fight. Yeah, I mean, tough kid. And he was, uh, he was on a little bit of a streak. Um, but. I just felt like, like you said, I was better everywhere. I knew that going into the fight. You know, I think I'm, you know, getting ready, you know, to make a to make a run for the title. So, um, yeah, he was a he was a good test, but you know, i was just not on the same level. You liked how you felt at 145. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was fighting a 35 pounder. I'm a 35 pounder. I was fighting him at 45 because of COVID 19. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I like the weight class, but I think Joe Rogan came on and said that. And I think everybody holds everything Joe Rogan says in pretty high, uh, high regard. Um, I'm a 35 pounder. I'm not going to play at 45. How hard is that cut for you to 135? Oh, it's terrible, but it's hard to make 45 too. You know, I walk around at about 170 pounds. It's just about being a little bit more disciplined. You know, I, there's a lot of foods I can't eat There's a lot of Uh, things I can't do. Um, it's just about the, the discipline. Uh, I gotta be a lot more disciplined to make 135 pounds, but everybody's that disciplined at this level, you know, as an athlete, you know, that these guys are, these guys are monsters. They're huge. Um, yeah, you got 145 pound guys walk around at 200 pounds, you know, and they're just, they're just dieting and cutting the weight. So you don't want to go into the cage with a guy that's, you know, 10, 15 pounds heavier than you. Uh, on fight night, so um, it's hard on everybody, but it's it's uh, it's part of the sport unless you know something changes. Uh, give me an example of a meal you might
1: have, like on fight week. Let's say after Tuesday, when you're getting close to where the cut is about to begin. What what, what would you typically eat? Two and a half ounces of protein. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <sighs> Jesus, man, that's got to be like. That is so. You, you must be eating something like I don't know in the order of a thousand calories a day, something like that.
4: No, well, less than that. A well, lot less than that. Wow. Probably five hundred for that week. But it's the weeks leading up that it really matter. You know what I mean? It's the week leading up that, getting your weight down. You, you have to be in a in a place where you're manageable. And you know, the fight week, it's really about you know cutting salt and carbs, anything that will hold water to your body, because you got to. Um, dehydrate yourself to the point where, um, you know, things start getting, things start shutting down. And if you don't do it the right way, you know, the, the water doesn't want to come out of your body and you can be really hard on yourself. Uh, there's a lot to it, you know, there's a science to it. And I don't think anybody really understands it. So it's hard to, it's hard to just talk about it because people are just like, I don't know, I don't get it. I don't understand. It's like, why don't you just fight whatever you weigh? It's like, well, because the guy I'm fighting is going to be 180 pounds on fight night. And that's just not, that's just not a good thing for me.
1: Yeah, it's a fair consideration. Cody Stamen joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Cody, let's let's stick with UFC 250 for just a second here. The Bantamweight division made a lot of moves. So let me go through the fights here and get your reaction to them uh, if you had a chance to see them. If not, it's fine. But did you see Sean O'Malley's win, and what did you make of it?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a good shot, but I mean, he's fighting. fighting the guy's been getting knocked out quite a bit. You know what I mean? Like, so it's a different... Uh, I don't know. I'm not really impressed with, uh, with that win for him, but a lot of people were. So, I mean, uh, his stock obviously went up. That's a good, it'd be a good fight in the future. I think it'd so, be right. a, be a fun guy to fight uh, a gentleman. You had
1: uh, in a, uh, a fight with previously Alderman Sterling beating, Co- uh, excuse me, beating, um, uh, Corey Sandhagen, your, your thoughts.
4: I mean, he just went out there and proved he's the best guy in the world right now. You know, I mean, that's, uh, He's taken out like, someone that's undefeated in the UFC, that's top four in the world. Just taking him out in the first minute of the first round—that's uh, that's pretty impressive.
1: What did you make of Aljamain Sterling? What did you learn fighting him? Because you say you thought he's the—you be- think he's the best bantamweight on earth right now?
4: Yeah, he's the best guy in the world for sure. I think everybody knows it. Um, I just learned that you know there's uh, there's, a, there's a lot of growth that has to be done in the UFC. You know, I think everybody learns it. If you uh, if you think you're going to rush the top and stay there, it just doesn't happen that way. You know, you got to build yourself up and, you know, get there the same way everyone else does to get there. And it's not, uh, there's no such thing as fast track to the top. You know, no one really stays in the top. You got to, you got to pay your dues. You got to fight, you know, all the B level guys. And then you start fighting A level guys. And, uh, you there's know, a, there's, a, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to figure out, you know. And if you get, you get rushed to the top, you won't be there for long. I mean, look at, look at Cody Garbrandt, you know, he went to the top fast and then fell. Even faster. So,
1: so let's talk about his rebound, if we can, uh, win over Rafael Sunsau tricky opponent. What did you make of that performance?
4: That's another guy. You know, you're talking about uh, um, well, Eddie Wineland, You know, I think he's like 35, 37, way past his prime. And then you got Sunsau, He's like 37, 38, way past his prime. You know, they're just they're they're, they're feeding these guys. They're feeding Garant that win. They needed him to win. They needed him to win. And, and uh, since I was a perfect opponent, I mean, hats off to him for getting that fight, um, you know, and having the kind of pull that he does in the UFC. But uh, I mean, that's another gimme fight for uh, Cody Garbrandt. Uh, uh, Cody Stamen joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. Uh,
1: Cody, so you had mentioned that uh, this is uh, now the push to get a title shot. Realistically speaking, how far do you think you are away from one?
4: At least a year, you know, two fights, two big fights, two big fights. And, you know, the right momentum, right. The right, you know, the right everything, you know, it's going to, everything has to fall in line for that to happen. You know, the uh, the right amount of publicity, the right amount of everything, you know, do you really get a title shot. Now you gotta be more than just, you gotta be doing more than just winning fights. You know, it's a timing thing. It's a popularity thing. There's a lot that goes into it, you know, so I'm going to have to work my ass off the next year to, to uh, see that become a reality. Uh, let
1: me play devil's advocate, if I may, uh, Cody. Certainly, you are doing quite well in the UFC, but your wins have come by decision. Yeah, um, do you feel yeah. Do you feel a uh, a need to turn that corner toward stoppage victories, if at all possible? I mean, you're not fighting chumps, but nevertheless, um, certainly stoppage victories seem to get more of the matchmaker's attention and favoritism.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think finishing fights. Is definitely a fast track to the top, you know what I mean. But <laughs> more importantly than that is, is winning, winning, winning is the number one thing in the world. You know, I have focused so much on finishing fights, but you know, I was trying to finish Brian Kaylor. He just didn't, he just didn't go down. I mean, I talked to him after the fight. He didn't even know what plan he was on. So you know, I was real close. Um And it's just, it's just going to be about me getting, you know, keep keep landing these hard shots. Eventually, guys are going to start falling. But you know, my main focus is just to win.
1: Is there any way to uh, explain to the rest of us who have not been in the training room with you and not seen the behind the scenes um, to understand the significance and how important the move to Las Vegas has been for you? Uh,
4: You know, I think mainly it's just been like, uh, I'm I'm fighting a ton of guys that are, uh, fighting a ton of guys that are, you know, on on my level every day. Same, same, same dreams, same goals. Um, and you know, I've, I've learned to, you know, with the performance Institute and everything else, I've learned to train a lot smarter, uh, that's kept me healthier and that's kept me in the gym more. And, you know, I, you know, I think it showed in that last fight, you know, that I'm, I'm obviously making, uh, you know, leaps and bounds. And like, I don't even, after watching that fight, I wasn't quite as impressed as maybe other people were, you know, I feel like that was still, uh, a fragment of what I'm capable of. Uh, as an athlete, you know, so I think there's still a lot more room to grow in my eyes. And, uh, yeah, and this is the sort of eternal
1: question about it all, right? You performed at UFC 250. UFC's looking for quick turnarounds. Are you, are you, are you capable or interested in a quick turnaround?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, maybe a quick turnaround would be nice, but (laughs) It's got to be the right opportunity. It's got to be the right opponent. You know, I'm in a position, you know, I've won my last four fights in a row. You know, all ranked opponents. Um, Two of them are on a short notice. I don't really need, financially, I don't need to fight again, you know, right away. You know, I've been in this part of my money. You know, I've saved pretty much everything i made as an athlete. You know, so I'm comfortable. I could not fight for two years and be completely fine. Um, So it's got to be the right opportunity. You know, if the right opportunity comes up in two months, I'll do it. If uh, the wrong opportunity comes up and they am going to do it in two months, oh, well, it's time to kiss my butt and I'm not going to do it, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm I I'm in the driver's seat right now. That feels good. You know, obviously, you win and you do it, you know, a way that, you know, if people take notice, uh, you can kind of call the shots and I'm in a position right now where I can and uh, I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'm going to use it to my advantage and I'm going to get the fights that I want. Uh, and... Uh, there are only a handful of guys that, you know, I'm, I'm going to say yes to right now, Sean O'Malley being one of them, or, you know, one of the top ranked guys in the world.
1: Fair enough. Uh, in terms of the larger circumstances of what you had to deal with at UFC 250, I certainly do not wish to pry, but just in terms of what you can tell us here, that ha- that probably, in terms of even just the athletic challenge, uh, all, all told, given what you were uh, dealing with, is that the hardest thing you've done in MMA? No, oh, yeah.
4: It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I mean, it it's, continues to be hard. You know what I mean. It's the hardest. You know, the the you know the first time I really suffered any loss that close to home, um, and then to still have to go out and fight and do my job. You know, I don't feel like a hero for doing that because that's just what you do when you're when you're a man. And uh, but, I mean, yeah, the whole situation was was. I mean, the hardest thing
1: I've ever had to do. Are you, are you glad you fought, or is there a part of you that says, eh, like maybe it would have been better if I hadn't?
4: No, absolutely. Uh, uh I, that's, I mean, like I said, uh, I'm not glad. I'm not sad. I'm not mad. I'm fighting is my job. You know, and that's how I that's how I make money. That's how I provide for myself, my family, for everyone, you know? And, uh, I had to do that. I had to do that because it's my job. Um, like I said, I think p- people kind of made it seem like, uh, like I was some kind of hero for doing it. You know what I mean? Like, wow, you're such an inspiration. And maybe that is inspiring. And, and I'm, you know, if I can help somebody get through a hard time, you know, I, I I'm, I want to, you know, but at the same time, I don't necessarily in my heart feel like I did anything extraordinary. You know, I'm just a, I'm just an athlete that, uh, had something terrible happen to him before he had to compete um, but you know, I'm not alone, you know, people go to war and, you know, watch their friends die and they still got to go out and survive. That's just the way of the world. You know, I think, uh, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing, but it's also part of life and, you know, part of being a man is about, you know, just putting your, putting your nose down and getting shit done. And that's exactly what I did.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Cody, I don't know if this is uh, helpful or not, but I tragically and suddenly lost my mother in 2003 I almost drank myself Sorry. to death, dude. Uh, no, it's okay. But I, I, mean, I was 23 at the time. I almost drank myself to death. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. So to watch what you did and go out there, again, I don't know what the particulars of your situation are like and what it feels like. I've never been a pro fighter. I mean, everyone's got their own differences. Uh, and I know you may not feel like this. I think in a few years, you're going to look back on it, and uh, you're probably going to reflect on – you what you did is only is only possible if you've spent the last 30 years of your life stealing your mind and if you yeah. didn't it's not you could you there wouldn't even be an option for you i think that's what i want to want to mm-hmm. tell you
4: well thank you yeah and and uh i have you know i've i i've always been uh you know i guess i was a shit kid you know was like a lot of fighters end up you know smart kid talented real athletic you know, just never really put my mind to anything. And then when I really kind of set set myself on fighting, I was, I was, uh, I was devoted. I did everything. I, you know, I did the mental training. I did the physical training. I did everything. You know, I left no stone unturned and that's, you know, it's no secret to how I got here. Um, and like, that's kind of how I approached it. I was like, listen, we have something, you know, something terrible just happened, but you know, I need to, I need to keep the negative stuff out of my mind. You know, I think people, everyone saw that. You know, I I I put everything off that whole week, all week. I just didn't, I didn't allow, allow myself to think about it. I didn't allow myself to 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 get negative. You know, because you have all kinds of weird emotions. You know, when something like that happens, you start blaming yourself. You blame others. You're mad. You're sad. You know, everyone grieves differently. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. Um, but I knew that for the time being, before the fight, I had to. I had to not think about it. All I had to do was think about and focus on, you know, what I had to do with the fight, and then I, you know, I kept it all together. But you know, as you saw, um, as soon as the fight was over, it was like, you know, everything that I'd been bottling up and and keeping out of my mind for the last week or so, uh, just came out of me. And uh, yeah, it was like probably, you know, if you know me, I'm not an emotional guy. I'm not a I'm not a crier. I'm not, I'm kind of the strong silent type, or maybe the strong loud type, uh, depending on who you are but uh yeah i mean for me to do that was uh you know at first i was embarrassed i'm like i can't believe i just did that and then you know like my coaches were like cody it's, it's you know it's okay like it's okay you know you just you're being human you're being human and i guess you know after you know going back and like reading some of the some of the things that you know other people like like you were saying you, you lost your mother you know and and a lot of people reached out to me that lost someone um and they just they had really you know nothing but good things to say and, you know, offering a helping hand. And, you know, I guess that, uh, you know, loss, you know, something that, that kind of brings everybody closer, you know, I'm I'm, crying on the phone with people I've never met, um, you know, that live in a different country that, you know, I lost a brother and I'm like, Hey, can I talk to you about it? You know, so the whole experience, um, you know, as bad as it's been, you know, there's been a lot of great people that stepped up and really, um, you know, showed me, um, you know how how uh, you know how good my support system is. How how many people care, you know, and really kind of you know I've seen nothing but but really 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 positive uh, positive things, you know, from 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 everything that's happened.
1: Well, I got to tell you, it's been impressive to see how you deal with it. It's been impressive to watch you fight too, man. I don't want that to get lost in the story here because you fought your ass off. You looked great and you're on your way. So I'll just say this, Cody, thank congratulations you. on the win. We appreciate your time. Thank Take you. care of yourself. And we can't wait to see you back in the octagon whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you so much. There he is. Cody Stammen. Great, great win by him. And obviously, you know, we all know the story. Pretty difficult circumstances.
2: MelTa Mel News here. Time. Have a question about MMA,
1: sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place.
4: Email Luke at show at gmail.com
2: and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show midweek mailbag. All right,
1: we're back. Luke Thomas Show, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. By the way, check out the Fantasy Football Guru mornings at 7 Eastern on Fantasy Sports Radio. Get your fantasy football fix with John Hansen, including player projections and draft strategies for the upcoming season on Sirius XM Fantasy Football weekday mornings from 7 to 11 Eastern on Sirius 210XM87 and the Sirius XM app, or however you stream in your home. All right. Let's get to uh, this Luke Thomas show at gmail.com. Time for the mailbag, your chance to steer the show. We could talk about whatever you want. MMA, sports, COVID-19. I bet you want to talk about that, but it's sort of front and center all the time. Booze, uh, whatever, whatever's on your mind. It's your chance to steer the show. With that in mind, Cobb, let's kick off with the first question, please, sir.
2: Message. All right, Luke, this one comes from Walter, who says, hey, Luke, kind of new to the fight game, just a couple of years uh, watching the sport. What obstacles intrinsic to MMA that prevents the unionization of MMA fighters as opposed to other sports and jobs? How realistically doable is a fighters union? What would the first steps be?
1: Well, that's sort of a better question for a labor organizer that I'm not entirely capable of answering. I don't know the history of labor organized Everyone knows it in baseball, right? Kurt Flood and all that kind of stuff. I don't know it for how it did it in soccer. I don't know the story of how that happened in football. So part of that is a little bit beyond my purview. Uh, actually, a lot of it is beyond my purview. Uh, I just think one of the major challenges they might have is... Uh, you have to get 30% to sign essentially these cards that indicate that, that they want to be part of a union, and uh, then you have enough where you could have a vote, and then if the vote works, um, you know, you, the, the, you'll, you'll be recognized um, as such. So uh, what, is the, what is the issue with that there? I mean, the, the good news is you don't have to convince anybody, um, right? There's enough belief that the fighters know it, it'd be good for them, you uh, could look at the issue with the uh, the athletic did some research to this effect, right? I think the challenge would be in convincing enough people to actually sign on the dotted line. I think Project Spearhead did that and tried to do that and couldn't get couldn't even get the thirty percent. Um, and you know why is that the case? Did they fear retribution? Did they fear that? Uh, I'm told that a lot of guys feared that if they signed, even though it was totally confidential and it would never work. Um you know, they would never be revealed publicly. They just didn't believe that they thought somehow or another, they would all find themselves to be, um, you know, outed. So you'd have to create some kind of way that you don't have to convince them that the union would work. You have to convince them that that particular organizing effort would work, that it would be confidential and that enough of them could be put on board to make a difference. Because until there's just enough outward support where they could rely on each other, I think, honestly, there's going to be a tipping point. Like, it was impossible to imagine. Cobb, wouldn't you agree, two years ago, it was impossible to believe that Colin Kaepernick would ever throw another pass in the NFL, right? You just could not believe that that would ever happen. True or false, right? You never knew, but I'm going to –
2: 2018, I'm saying false. Would you agree? Dude, the second he got that settlement, I said, you're never going to see me in the NFL again. I,
1: th- I think that's right. I think you did. And now NFL look at paid the him,
2: they, NFL paid him off. We don't want to see you ever again. Like, <laughs> you're good here. We're, we're fine. I, I yeah. for sure we were never going to see him in the NFL. Now if there's a legit shot. It might actually look worse if they don't bring him back in the league. Like, right. Who we're, is- <laughs> we're, we're
1: at a point now where the Chargers were talking about how he fits their system. Yeah. You know, you're like, are you kidding me? You couldn't, you couldn't have imagined, not, not even two years ago. You couldn't have imagined that six months ago. And yet here we are. So the point being is, there, you know, I'm not saying there has to be riots or protests in the streets, rather, there has to be some kind of an event that serves as a tipping point, where all of a sudden the support for it becomes overwhelming and becomes public, so that everyone feels comfortable signing on board, and we just haven't hit that yet. And what that is and when that, what that looks like, I don't know. But, you know, yes, fighters being in different countries is a big part of it. You know, um, there's a lot of things that are a part of that make organizing that that difficult. But we just haven't had that crossover moment yet. And I think until we do, we're, you know, we're not going to get there. Next.
2: All right. This comes from Dan from Texas, who says, hey, Luke, I'm not really expecting you to have the answer, but how the F is Li Zhang ranked higher than Valentina in women's pound for pound all kinds of respect for way lee but valentina is on another level just my opinion
1: so i don't know the answer to that my hunch is the answer is um, because she competes in a much tougher division so the, the remember well, pound for pound is is a little bit more is pound for pound is just for fun okay my guess is what they're saying is shevchenko could be more talented but she hasn't beaten uh, the same level of opposition. Like, you know, for to beat Ioana... And by the way, you could say, well, they both beat Ioana. Right. But one beat him at 115 pounds and one beat him at 125. Although the Shevchenko fight was not especially close. Um, so that could be the reason that she's had to beat tougher people to get where she is relative to Shevchenko. And I think that's a bit of an oversimplification because... You can look at what Shevchenko did up a weight class, but I don't think it's as crazy as you might imagine. Remember what the rankings are supposed to be, and pound for pound gets a little bit different because pound for pound is, you know, it, you're not looking for a title shot in the end. But ordinary rankings, that's how it's supposed to look, and I think what they're saying is just measuring who you beat. I'm not saying I agree with it, but when you think about it on those terms and at the weight class she's doing it, it, it at least is somewhat not as crazy as the way I would put it. Next.
2: Answer my question! All right, this comes from Dave, who says, Hey, Luke, I agree with you and KOB that having police take jiu-jitsu is a bad idea. I am a black belt in jiu-jitsu and have been rolling for 15 years. I trained at Big John McCarthy's gym in Valencia, California, for about five years. John is an amazing officer himself and has done great things for the police. Our gym had a lot of police officers, and it was a pretty mixed bag. Uh, Half were really good people that just wanted to learn and work out. Some of that stress that comes with the job. Uh, the other half were fundamentally not good people. Not only were they not good as training partners, but they would often discuss openly during sessions interactions in which they would physically harm people while doing their job. It was common for them to share stories and one up each le- try to one-up each other uh, to levels of pain they would dish out to civilians. In fact, one of the officers actually w- was terminated for threatening the owner of an art gallery when he was off a shift. The other issue here is they lead in with some of the worst statistics, such as suicide rate, alcohol and drug abuse and domestic violence. Not sure you want people like that uh, honing their skills on the mats. Love the show, thanks Dave.
1: Yeah, I mean take the, you know this is a uh, take their take the story for what it's worth. I'm not calling it false, but you know we we've, we've not verified it. So take that for what it is. Listen, as I said before, one of the one of my favorite instructors I've ever had was a police officer here in DC. And the reason why he was great was because he was a little mean. Uh, but by that, I mean, he had a mean jujitsu style. He had a style of, there's a lot of different styles, man. There's a lot of people who like to mobile pass, a lot of guard players. He was like a pressure passer, and he really liked to grind. He liked to put, you know, pins on you to make you suffer, right? That was his jujitsu style. But he's a caring person, uh, father, uh, husband, uh, you know, a really dedicated instructor. I remember one time somebody... Uh, I didn't, I didn't see this, but somebody had gone, a dude had gone rough with my wife rolling and I didn't see, I was in another room. So I was completely different from that. And I come in the room and I see this instructor rolling with the dude again at the time. I didn't know what was happening, who was rough with my wife. (laughs) I think he was like a purple or blue belt, something like that. And this instructor demolished him, you know, all within the rules of jujitsu, but just really kind of put it on him. And, you know, you could say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be handled either. But the point being was he made sure that women had a safe environment to train, you know, and I trusted him and I still trust him. And he's a black belt now. I went to his black belt ceremony. Like if all police officers were like him, I wouldn't worry ever. Uh, So obviously, yes, if you go through that process and as I mentioned, if you surrender to it, it can be no doubt about it. Transformative. On the other hand, if you don't, and you just go through as a way to enhance what your already bad ideas about the world are, it can do that for you too. So, you know, is Jujitsu could it be helpful in certain cases? I mean, who could argue it 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 couldn't be? But is that the solution from a policy standpoint to what ails American policing? That seems like a deeply simplistic worldview, and I and I think that it is. Next
2: message. Well, speaking of which, this comes from Clifton, who says, Hey, Luke, I would love to hear you interview Henner. Or, uh, Hi, Ron. How do you actually say the other? Brother? I think it's Huron. Huron. Okay. Henner or Huron, Gracie, on your show to talk about their ideas for police training. Uh, I would also like to hear your thoughts on the videos they put out about it. I didn't see it. Did you see it? No, he he puts links to him here. So one was the future of policing in America, and should show cold to be banned in law enforcement?
1: Yeah, I mean, under- what are they going to under- say though? I mean, you,
2: yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably- I mean, do you 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 expect them
1: to say that jujitsu? They think jujitsu solves everything. And by the way, they're nice guys. Um, you know, Henner, I've I've interviewed a number of times. Couldn't be a sweeter person. Yes, of course, they believe in the transformative power of jujitsu because it's in their family, it's in their blood, it's in their business, it's in their identity. Right. So, of course, they're going to believe that. And again, it's not it's not wrong. It's not wrong to think that they've probably brought in police officers and made them better cops, made them better people like that's not an, that 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 by itself is not wrong. The question is, at scale, how do we fix American policing where forget about jujitsu? Uh, this guy who got shot in Atlanta, who was fell asleep, drunk in the the drive in or the drive through at Wendy's, and then ran and had the taser, and then they killed him. Like, jujitsu in this particular circumstance, probably irrelevant. It's a question of how you solve American policing issues. So, yes, in individual circumstances, if someone was like, I really want to change, I really want to learn, I want to be a better cop, and I want to be, you know, just a better, healthier person, I would absolutely recommend jujitsu. But this is not a solution at, to, to, at scale. This is a very individualized thing that can work, um, here and there and that is real but that's not you know that's th- it's just not the solution that people think it is
0: thanks for listening catch the luke thomas show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m eastern on sirius xm fight nation channel 156 on twitter follow at l thomas News and the channel at mma on sirius xm